Happy New Year and welcome back to 2018 Sleep for Performance Radio Podcast. This is episode number 15 today. Today's guest is Mr. Todd Dawson from Caterpillar. That's the company that makes that big mining and construction equipment. So Todd joins us uh, on Zoom. Todd works for Caterpillar Safety Services as the Global Fatigue Solutions Manager. I've known Todd for close to 10 years and I've uh, worked on some projects with Todd in North America and in Africa. He's a great guy and he's got a practical approach to working in fatigue risk management and productivity and um, a really down-to-earth guy. Really get on well with Todd, as you can hear from this conversation. Todd graduated from Harvard University with a degree in biological anthropology, where he also played American football. His focus was on circadian rhythms and hormones. And his senior thesis was on the effects of working night shift on human salivary cortisol. Todd went on to become a leader in the field of human fatigue management and still is. With over 20 years experience, he has worked all over the world, and I mean all over the world, in many industries from aviation to rail to supermarkets to mining to oil and gas, any sort of high risk industry or any sort of uh, application, Todd's probably had some involvement with it. So Todd um, implements fatigue risk management systems, provides training to shift workers, and implements technologies to mitigate fatigue. On top of this, Todd is an avid outdoorsman. He likes to, to hunt and fish. I've been to the indoor shooting range with Todd as well. He really likes his guns and uh, does a lot of target shooting as well. Um, Todd lives just outside Boston, Massachusetts, although he spends most of his time on the road working in this area. Um, this is a really interesting episode. If you work in any of these high-risk activities, um, particularly for those of you in mining, oil and gas, I think you'll, you'll enjoy this episode. Um, so yeah, into the show. I would, I would do a countdown from five, four, three, two, one, but you probably can't count that far. So I'll, I'll just say, Todd, let's go. How's that sound? Okay. I'll probably, leave, I'll probably leave that in as well. Cool. <laughs> I, I do have all five fingers. I'm okay with five. Just don't go to like 11. Uh, I have to take my shoes off. You see people, that's the guy from Sesame Street. He never got past 12. <laughs> I never understood in Sesame Street why they never got past 12. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, we'll leave that for another podcast. Today I am joined right. by Todd, Todd Dawson by the magic of Zoom. Uh, and Todd is based in Boston, Massachusetts in America, the United States of. We had a previous conversation about politics in the States. We're not going to repeat that because people could be listening. <laughs> Namely the AIC and the BIF. Um but not the BFG. <laughs> Todd, do you want to tell listeners how we first met? Because I think that first evening we met in Boston was quite interesting. It sounds a bit uh, romantic. I was trying, that nearly sounded a bit romantic, but it wasn't romantic. Well, is that, is that when I brought you the roses and the champagne, you mean? No, it was the second that, day. That, oh, oh, that was the second <laughs> day, was it? Okay. Um, yeah, I think... Uh, Jeez, I didn't know there was going to be a quiz and I have to go back that far. Uh, it was about like eight or nine years ago, I think, maybe. Yeah, roughly, yeah. Does that sound about right? And um, 
think uh, <laughs> I remember. Todd was working for. I was working for Circadian at the time. Yeah. Did we meet at a conference? No, nah, you were asked to give me a tour at Harvard, and you thought, oh my God, here's another ding dong. Oh, that's right. Here's another ding dong. Right. I, I have to bring on a tour. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, no, I, so I remember now. Yeah, because I remember you saying, oh, geez, I thought, because uh, you had come in to meet with um, uh, Martin, and uh, is that right? Or The, ne- the next day I was going to meet with Martin, yeah. At okay, yeah. So I think I, I showed up in my my four-wheel drive truck in Boston, yeah. right? Picked you up at the hotel. Yeah. And and you, you were like, uh, gee, I didn't think you were who you were because, you know, you didn't have uh, a smoking jacket with leather <laughs> patches on the elbows <laughs> and you didn't work smoking a pipe or anything. But yeah, no, that's right. I forgot about that. But yeah, so I... And then I remember taking you to the Border Cafe in Harvard Square after we did a little tour around the yard, Harvard that, Yard, that, and all that stuff. That's right. And I, I had been to the States before, but at this in particular ca- uh, instance, I was horrified. And I was horrified how cheap things were at the time. It was probably around 2010. And um, I remember at the time ordering two beers, those equis, <laughs> those equis. And uh, I said to Lady, can I get two beers, please? And she said something like $3. And I went, no, I want to get two. And I was shouting at her, two, because the bar was packed. <laughs> I know. And she's like... Three dollars. I'm like, yeah, but for two. And she was like, yeah, it's three dollars. I was like, for two? Okay, yeah. there's five. And like, it was awesome. And you were like, I, I do, sideways. It was so cheap. <laughs> well, I do. I do remember too when the bill came because I, you know, you're like, all right, what do I get? And I said, well, why don't I just order a bunch of different things and and we can pick and shoot, you know, pick at it, right? And so they brought out enough food for at least twenty people. Oh, um, ridiculous. Right. And, and, uh, and then you, you offered, you, you're like, Hey, I'll, I'll get this one. This one's on me. I said, okay. And the bill came and you're like, you're looking at me going, this, this can't be right. They, they missed something. They didn't charge us. You know, I'm going, no, that looks about right. <laughs> so yeah, no, it, it, uh, even though Boston's not particularly known for being, uh, cheap, or you know, not costing a lot. Um, it's not Perth. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, I think that meal was thirty-two dollars, and I like rolled out of there, so it was like ridiculously cheap. You know, <laughs> it's like it was silly. I think I might have given thirty dollars as a tip. You know, so <laughs> it was so crazy. All right, so I didn't bring Todd on to talk about Mexican food and walking on Harvard, but there is a reason why why that Todd started off his um, academic career at Harvard, um, playing football and studying. Now, Todd, what exactly did you study at Harvard? Uh, in the end, my degree is in biological anthropology, um, uh, which sounds a bit odd, but I, yeah. you know, I, I always, I always say that you know that that puts me in a good position to study us uh, today because we're still mostly cavemen in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, a lot of our systems and pieces and parts of our bodies are are the same as they have been for an awful long time, um, but within that that concentration in biological anthropology, um, I tended to focus a lot more on uh, hormones, so the, the daily rhythms, the circadian rhythms um, that, uh, that our bodies go through ups and downs. And um, without the whole long story, uh, I found a company in Cambridge that was doing consulting around shift work and fatigue, and that was kind of right up my alley. And so... I was there for almost 20 years and 
Uh, moved to Caterpillar about three and a half years ago, doing uh, the same kind of work in fatigue risk management, training and education, um, looking at shift schedules, looking at technologies, all those things. But but all of it surround um, you know, around this idea of fatigue and how do we manage it and keep our folks safe, keep ourselves safe. Yeah, so a few people that listen to that now and thought and go, Cambridge, England, you sound like you're American, but it's actually Cambridge and Massachusetts, not yeah, Cambridge, yeah, English, right. England. And yeah. secondly, people be going, Caterpillar, the clothing. <laughs> but no, because <laughs> some people have said that to me before. Caterpillar, they make trucks as well? I'm like, yeah, yeah. Whoa, 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 wait, 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 that's what they do, the clothing is secondary. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, so we yeah. should clarify that oh, for yeah. some people. That it's oh, yeah, they make steel toe, yeah, they make steel-toe boots, right? Yeah, and now they started making, yeah. started making trucks recently, but they've always made <laughs> yeah. trucks. So Caterpillar is a massive company. When we look at kind of mining um, in yeah. around the load and haul activities um, in pay operations, you probably get two big companies, Caterpillar and Komatsu, the Japanese company. You guys yeah. would be uh, significantly big. Um, I think, is it true that you guys like basically are the fleet management for all of BHP, the world's biggest company globally nearly? Yeah, for the most part, yeah, yeah, we have most of BHP, yeah. And so BHP is the world's largest mining company, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, a lot of people don't recognize too, well, I should say that, that a lot of people on the street know about the excavators and the backhoes and the, the smaller bulldozers and things like that that they'll see on a, a road construction site or a building construction site, but... Um, you know, a lot of the work that I've done here in the first few years with Caterpillar and, and actually even before that, but um, is largely in mining. And so it's with the, the huge, the enormous pieces of equipment, um, mm. um, things you need. You know, they're, they're two story uh, tall trucks and, and shovels that are even bigger than that. So, yeah, that's that's where I've done a lot of uh, a lot of work. Yeah, here in the last few years. And so, Todd, your job, like for listeners as well, me, myself, and Todd have worked together on projects. When I worked in mining for Rio Tinto, we we coupled up on projects together. We worked together in Canada, South Africa, here in Australia, you know, um, and we also attended same conferences. You know, we put kind of strategy papers together, policy papers, as well as doing yeah. in field on the job data stuff as well. So it's a very kind of a, I would say, not complex, but it's very. It's very an inter- it's a very interesting job in terms of fatigue risk management and applied settings because you get to deal with all levels uh, in an organization right through to executives. You have to have different skill sets in terms of analyzing data right through to pitching presentations. But you also have to be pretty flexible yourself in managing your own fatigue and traveling uh, and getting sure. around and sleeping in different environments and, and yeah. so on. You've been at now, Todd, probably longer than anybody I've known doing it. Um, do you still enjoy it fundamentally? Do you still enjoy the work? Uh, and are you, do you still find new things in it every time you do a project? Sure, yeah. And, you know, it's funny because it's, it's a bit unusual that uh, someone would come out of university and, and go into a job and stay with that job. First of all, I was with, you know, the first job I started um, out of college, I was there for almost 20 years mm. doing the same type of work, all in this fatigue you know, fatigue management and, and sleep and shift work. Um, and, and to continue doing that, move to another company, but doing the same exact thing, uh, it's a bit unusual. But, um, you know, to your question, yeah, it, it feels great to, to work with a new company and there's always new places uh, all around the world. Um, 
and I, and I do enjoy that part of it. But honestly, the the I think the piece still that that uh, you know maybe resonates the most for me is when you get that one person who is just struggling and mm-hmm. dealing with whatever their schedule is, whatever the work is, um, you know, and through interviews, discussions, talking with them, training, education, you know, they, they come up to you after and you're like, Oh my gosh, man, you, you, you changed my life. I didn't know that. I didn't know I should be doing this. I didn't know I had sleep apnea, you know, pick, pick the reason, but, but it's that individual level, uh, honestly, that, um, that I enjoy making those connections still the, the best. And, and, you know, and I don't mean that it's only uh, for like an hourly employee. It it can be the CEOs of companies. It can be the VPs. It can be the supervisors, the frontline supervision. It's all across that, whatever level they're on um, in the hierarchy of the, the organization, doesn't matter. It's it's when you touch their lives in some positive, meaningful way. Honestly, that's still where I I get the biggest kick. Um, and it's great to do great big projects and and the sense of accomplishment for some of the, the big projects and work that we do, that's fantastic. But, but again, still for me, it's, it's getting down to that individual level and, and just seeing the, the change in them when you, you know, work them uh, through a sleep apnea program and they are fully compliant and they say, Oh my gosh, you know, I can't believe how much better my life is now that I can actually sleep. So you know, that, that's the, the part I think that still drives me and gets me up out of bed, uh, even though I do like to sleep in. <laughs> Todd is a night owl. <laughs> yeah, while, you're, while you're sleeping, Todd is on the rocking chair outside in the porch watching everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, there, Todd, there's a question. Um, I'm going to take a little bit of a sidestep on this because you spoke about biology anthropology. So a couple of questions yeah. here is uh, that I keep coming up with, and I'd be interested to hear your take on this from an anthropological point of view, if I said that right, is yeah. people think, number one, we can become um, night people through just sheer willpower. We can make ourselves become night people. So that's the first part. And then the second part is, what's the rationale, betw- betw- um, which may feed into this question, what's the rationale in people being different in terms of sleep? So, for example, you like to go to bed late and get up late. I like to go to bed early, get up early. Is there any reason why people are different like that? Or is it just a one is lazy? Because by determining lazy, I would say to people, you're only lazy lazy against a fixed schedule that the world has developed, you know? So, first of all, yeah, uh, can we become night people? And why do people have these different chronotypes going to bed late and getting up late? Right. So, so I'm going to actually answer the second one first. So, you know, we were all a little bit different. And, and I, at the risk of getting yelled at, um, when someone says, hey, how much sleep do we need? Everybody says, oh, well, they, quote, unquote, right? They say we need eight hours, but I do just fine with six, right? Okay, well, yes, there is variation. And some of that, I don't say some of it, it largely is driven by our genetics, so they've identified little sections, just like everything else that gives us blue eyes or brown hair or bald or whatever. Um, we do have uh, keys in our DNA that, that can indicate that we're more of a morning person, more of a night person, or somewhere in the middle. The reality is the majority of us are somewhere in the middle. So what we call 
I don't want to say normal, but what we'll call average. Or intermediate. Then, intermediate. intermediate, sure. Yeah. And, and then on either side of that, there are people that, if you just take morning, evening, some people are slightly more morning people. Some people are slightly more night people. Um, and then you have extremes. But again, keep in mind that as you go further out this bell curve, you have fewer percentages of people. So you have some extreme night owls and some extreme morning people. Um, and that's just kind of the, the variation within our populations. And, and that's genetic mutations and all those kind of things happening. Then, you know, so, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint or an anthropological standpoint, um, you know, in a way it's funny because we've, we've gotten past <laughs> kind of a lot of that where we, we rely on, on some of those. And so it's not being selected out because we have electricity, we have lights, we have fire, we have all those kind of things. Um, and so you'll, I, I assume and believe that we will con can continue to see variation uh, in our population like that. And, and, you know, the question then about, you know, can you train your body to be one way or another? And, and there's, in the simplest way, yeah, you can. You can adapt to it, but if you were then to go back to a, a normal state, you tend to revert back or want to go back to wherever your natural state is, whether it's morning, evening, somewhere in the middle. Um, and I'll give you an example. So, um, you know, when I am over there to, to work in Australia, come to Perth, um, that's pretty close to about 12 hours difference for me. So 180 degree flip of my day night cycle. And it takes several days up to a week for me to really adjust. Um, and I can adjust and I do, and I do just fine when I'm over there and then I have to come back. And so there's an adjustment period. Now, if I were to stay in Australia for the rest of my life, I would eventually acclimate to that and I would start moving toward being more of a night person in Australia. So, you know, the, the morningness, eveningness thing um, comes into play a lot of times when we're trying to figure out when is it best for me to sleep. Um, and there are some people that just really struggle with working irregular shifts or night shifts or even early morning shifts. And a lot of that has to do with uh, their, what we call a circadian profile. You know, are they a morning person or a night person? How much sleep do they need? Can they take naps? Are they flexible in their sleep? All those kind of things. And, um, you know, there are seem to be some indicators of who can adjust and who has a more difficult time. Um, but it's not 100% clear, really. So, so Todd, a, qu a question on that would be, or, or a comment I often get is people would say, well, I do four day shifts, then I do four night shifts, and then I'm off for eight days. But on the four night shifts, I can just completely switch become a night out and a hundred percent performance now my knowledge i'm like i don't know lads like you can, i don't think you can go a hundred percent one way and then a hundred percent the other way i know over time you can have some adaptation but fundamentally as a human being we are not meant to be awake in particular between three and six in the morning we are and if we are if we are awake we have very uh, low body temperature we have low cortisol levels high melatonin yeah. which induce sleep and we have inherently low performance. What, what would you say to that? Sure. No, I, I agree with that. And, you know, the, the, the human machine is, well, I should say our, our objective human consciousness is 
really bad at knowing just how tired we are. So mm -hmm. typically when you talk to people that say, oh no, I do that switch just fine. Well, I, I have to take it with a little grain of salt or you know, I can't dismiss their claim because there are you know, a small percentage of people that really can make that switch pretty quickly. But it's a very, very small percentage of people. The vast majority of us, we may think that we can do just fine on that first night shift and the second and the third and the fourth or however many we're going to work. But in reality, if we can take objective measurements of our performance, our effectiveness, uh, the quality of the work that we do, the mistakes that we make, um, you immediately start to see differences compared to someone who's working during the day. And on the whole, right? If you take out a, a particular individual, you can see individual problems. But on the whole, yeah, we just don't perform uh, at our best um, during the night. And, you know, there's this window of circadian low. You know, you mentioned somewhere between three and six. You could even expand it and say it's somewhere between 12 and six or one and six. But, but for most of us, at some point in those early morning hours, our performance degrades. And even if we have had a, a decent amount of sleep beforehand uh, during the day, um, it's, it's not typically as good a sleep as we get at night. Uh, and also then just the, the pressure of the circadian rhythms and how it's affecting all, all of our systems tends to lead to you know, increased incidents, accidents, injuries, mistakes in those early morning hours because the human machine just doesn't want to adapt to it. Um, and it takes several days, right? So yeah. the, the idea that on a four-day shift, kind of a 24 hours off, four-night shift um, scenario, and those first couple days on the night shift, hopefully we've built up enough of a sleep bank where we can kind of struggle through those. But the reality is the quality, the the increased risk is, is much higher on those night shifts. So Todd, we've discussed a little bit there about like kind of chronotypes, morning, evening, intermediate, you know, that adaptation to nights, performance overnight there, all that. But at the start of the conversation, we spoke about what you do with Circadian, the company, and then most recently now with Caterpillar on your background. So some people may not be familiar with fatigue risk management and they'd be like, well, what, what does this guy do when he goes into an organization? Yeah. Like what actually, sure. what, what is fatigue risk management? And so, cause some companies have never been exposed to it. So what, sure. what is, what is a fatigue risk management system? And then what, what is your goal when you go to an organization? Like are you in there to find people who don't sleep well to get rid of them? Or yeah. are you, are you there to like, you know, tuck people into bed or, you know, like, cause people have this weird idea about what fatigue risk management consultants do. Not that there's many of them, but yeah. Sure. Yeah, sure. So in, in general, fatigue management or fatigue risk management, uh, often you'll hear FRMS, fatigue risk management systems. It's a, it's a large umbrella for a planned and active um, system for managing fatigue, right? So in a way, it's just what the, the words say. But when you start digging into that, what you find is that just like any system on site, if you think about your, your production system, you say, oh, well, we dig, my, you know, we dig uh, stuff out of the ground and we put it in this crusher and somewhere out the end comes whatever ore you're after, gold, silver, coal, iron, doesn't matter, right? Sure, on the surface, that's, that's what we do. 
within fatigue risk management, um, it's similar. Hey, we're looking for ways that we can uh, reduce the risk of fatigue uh, for our individuals. And then you get into the detail of it. And, and typically, uh, a lot of the models that, that you'll see um, talk about different layers of defenses, um, you know, or attacking it based on where the greatest risk is. In the end, all of us, all those systems are trying to do the same thing, which is to first understand that, hey, we're all going to get tired. And second, realizing that what can we do to minimize the risk while we're working to make sure that the quality of life is uh, good and positive and healthy uh, because, you know, how, how we are at home in a way influences our, our time at work and vice versa. So when you think of a fatigue risk management system, it, it's one where we tend to, to uh, or what we like to do is think about layers of defense. And, and those layers, just to generalize, typically involve uh, some type of training and education programs about how do I manage fatigue, when do I get tired, uh, what kind of things can I do to help me get through a shift or to get through a drive home after a shift or into work. Um, and that plays a, a, a key role, and that largely is around the individual making choices and, and good decisions. Um, but you also want to look at schedules. Are, are the schedules inherently creating fatigue at certain times based on uh, the shift start time or the rotation speed or you know how many days in a row people work and, and all those operational or schedule type related things? And you can do assessments. Um, to get an idea of where people are, are going to struggle the most with that. And, and one of the, the things that's come out here really just in the last maybe 10 years is um, a layer of defense around technology and, and using technology in our operations to either uh, monitor fatigue or identify periods where people are at higher risk or in some cases in real time, um, capture when people are, are having fatigue events or microsleeps or, or are distracted uh, or in a high risk zone for experiencing those. So, you know, with that technology, that brings in another layer of defense, which is, well, what are all my policies and procedures around that? You know, look, if we, if we realize right now that we all get tired, I, I there are still a few holdouts in the world, but most of us realize that we get tired. And you talk to anybody that works a night shift and ask them if they get tired while they're working, they'll say, yeah, of course. And then you ask them, well, do you fall asleep ever? Uh, maybe uh, sometimes, I'm not sure. And that's where things like technology can help identify, hey, are you falling asleep or not? And I mentioned the policies and procedures around that because if we already know that we all get tired, why are you going to discipline or fire someone because they're getting tired and we're just still human machines? So, um, you know, within that fatigue risk management system, it's a, a, a system that looks at all of the possible uh, causes of fatigue and creates uh, systems and solutions around mitigating and managing those. Um, and maybe one final element of it is what we call the continuous improvement. So um, you, you wouldn't install a, a new process in your, your production facility uh, without going back and testing to make sure that it works. Right? So it's the same thing within fatigue management where you know, we're going to put some, some 
procedures in place. We're going to change this. We're going to add that. We're going to do some technology, whatever it is. You have to have the metrics to go back and say, hey, did we do a good job? Did we do the right thing that we wanted to do or not? And uh, if you don't have that, then you have usually a, a nice, well-written piece of paper that sits on a shelf somewhere. So without <laughs> that continuous improvement process, yeah. you're not really managing the process. Right? And, and that's something that, that drives me absolutely insane. I think you've really described fatigue risk management really well there, but that drives me insane. You go to an organization and they're like, here's our fatigue risk management system, this nice big folder that sits on the shelf behind them, or they send you this nice big PDF. Meanwhile, you go and talk to Johnny Bananas on the truck, and Johnny Bananas doesn't even. If, if, what did you call me? He says a fatigue. What? What did you call me? F what? F, F you? What? And he has yeah, no, yeah, no exactly. idea. So you're like, yeah, yeah, you've got a system in place that ticks a box for compliance. But yeah. interesting enough, Todd, um, when you were speaking there, um, this is probably something. Well, actually, I know this is something that I do, in, in, um, and you probably we've done it together actually inherently without speaking about there's a further part of fatigue risk management i think which is the integration and relationships so for example while fatigue risk management has all those elements it still needs to be integrated into existing safety management systems yeah um, into existing processes and procedures as well so that that link needs to be there that's the integration piece which can be quite complex depending on the company and there's the relationship piece which is about are we seeing relationships or observing anecdotally or looking at data? Are we seeing relationships in the fatigue measures or the objective measures like you spoke about, which we'll get into in a minute, and productivity? And this is something we've been looking for in sports as well. And I've tried to look for it as well previously in mining companies. At low yeah. points of the day, like in this window of circadian low between three and six when performance is down, are we seeing variation in performance in terms of yeah. productivity off a truck? Are we seeing more operational delays, more incidents, more accidents? Yeah. Are, are we spending more at these times? You know, if, I think like that's the next place where we need to go. We need to get into those more, defining those relationships better, having a better yeah. methodology to assess and quantify those and really add true triple line bottom value to a true triple line value to the organization. What's, what's your thoughts yeah. on that? No, I, I agree. And that's, you know, in a way, that's one of the battles that I've, I want to say I, um, myself and, and a lot of my colleagues, not just, um, you know, in, in my companies that I've worked, but in this kind of broader shift work and fatigue uh, community is educating people about, hey, this exists. And, and you know, so one of the ways you do that, uh, I don't know if it's good or bad, but is to say, hey, by the way, did you know that uh, all your tired guys making all these mistakes uh, is costing you money. What? What do you mean it's costing me money? Yeah, it's not just the cost of doing business and running 24-7. You can put things in place that are going to reduce that, and it's going to reduce absenteeism, or it's going to reduce maintenance costs on your trucks because the guys aren't beating them up and they're not driving with retarder brakes on all the time or or pulling away from the crusher with the body up and and, all these different pieces that we kind of – often kind of just, uh, I guess, put down to, oh, he wasn't paying attention. Well, what do you mean he wasn't paying attention? Why? Why was, was he, was he distracted? Was he tired? Was he, you know, passed out asleep or, or what was it? Right. So, you know, one of the, the tasks that we've had is, is how do we really identify? And, and it wasn't really until some of the technologies came out that they were able to start putting some, 
I guess, objective data or, or analysis around that and determine, hey, here's where they're tired. And by the way, did you know that it takes them longer to do this cycle when in these hours of the night? Well, why is that? There's, no, there's usually less you know, congestion or traffic on a, a mine site during the night shift. They should be zipping through there with no, no problems, right? Well, when you have some of these technology, you can, when you can see the struggles that some of these people are having, um, you start to understand why uh, sometimes performance or productivity, efficiency uh, goes down when people get tired. But, but uh, you know, I was thinking of one other thing that, that I wanted to add, and, and you kind of touched on it, and, and it, it's this stigma that we have still in our culture around fatigue. Right, the stigma that, um, oh, geez, if you're tired, uh, you're not tough, or or you're not dedicated, or you're not experienced, or you know, you just don't care enough to to pay attention and focus. And and the reality is, is that's not the case. So you know, within that FRMS, FRMS, um, what did you call me? Has to be <laughs> <laughs> There, I'm going to try not to throw around too many acronyms and abbreviations and stuff, but... Um, That's okay, Todd. We love TLAs here. <laughs> okay. TLAs are so, three-letter acronyms. <laughs> yeah. We got about 50 of those as well. We got some FLAs and... Anyway. Um, so, you know, as part of the... What I'm finding is that regardless of what... Uh, home countermeasures that you're going to implement as part of a fatigue risk management system. If the culture isn't um, in a good place to receive it, you can do all the awesomest, most coolest, perfect things you could ever think of or put down on paper and they're not going to work because there's still this stigma or there's a culture where there's distrust or uh, whatever it is. Um, but the culture has to be right for, for these, these types of programs to work. And if you don't do that, you're not going to get the benefits out of it that you, that you really want. Interesting observation. I think that's true for a lot of change programs as well. It's like, if the culture is not there from top to bottom, you're just not going to, you're just not going to get anywhere. Todd, 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 you spoke a moment about uh, a few moments ago about technologies that can identify sleep. But before we talk about, or, or the lack of sleep or performance. Before we talk about those technologies, um, there's two in particular I want to talk about, but sure. a lot of people would be going, okay, so I get tired, I get sleepy, yeah. I do shift work. What's the cure? How do I stop <laughs> this drive for sleep? So I, draw, I, I, I do night shift, I do shift work, I even do just day shift, and over time I feel really tired. So it's sleep yeah. drive or sleep pressure. Well, yeah. How do I reduce sleep drive? So uh, traditionally in our culture, uh, we, we fix that problem with caffeine, right? You know, that's kind of the, the go-to is that, oh, I'm getting tired. I must need another coffee. Well, the, in reality, it's kind of like, no, the only real antidote for sleepiness is to get sleep, right? So, oh, wait now, wait now. Um, what, what did you say there? I said that the only real antidote to, to sleepiness or fatigue, right, is to get sleep. Right. I'm glad you said that again because that's why I wanted to make sure you – because I had a stand-up argument with somebody last week that if you took 
modafinil, caffeine, <laughs> stimulants, it would re- eliminate the need for sleep. Sure. Yeah. For a short period of time, it would. So it just and kind of, de- it just defers it. It defers it. Yeah. It doesn't okay. go away. You know, it, the, the, you know, maybe an easy way to think of it is it's, Sleep is a bit like money in that, you know, you your work, you earn money and, and hopefully you put some of it in the bank. But in reality, it's usually easier to take money out of the bank than it is to put it in. Right. Mm. And sleep is not that different. Now, with sleep, if you don't get the amount of sleep that you need over, call it a week, you start to build up debt. Right. You build up sleep debt. Now, you know, I'm going to generalize here, but typically, um, you know, when you think of the, the money that you borrow, uh, buying a house or a car or whatever, you take out a loan and you have to pay that back uh, dollar for dollar plus on top of it, some interest rate or, or fee on top of it, right? And in a way, we're lucky that we don't have to do that with sleep. So, for example, let's say I went for a whole week and I only got six hours of sleep. And I, I do, I'm one of those people, I need to get eight hours of sleep. That's what I want. That's what my body wants and that's what I like to get. If I go for those seven days uh, and I only get six hours every night, well, that means I'm two hours short every night. That's 14 hours, right? So, if we were just using money, it'd say, oh, you got to pay those 14 hours back plus interest. And in reality, um, what we tend to find is that you, you need two nights consecutive of good sleep, eight hours, to pay back that debt, right? So um, at some point, you have to pay it back. Yeah, you can take modafinil, you can take caffeine, you can take five-hour energy shots and all that stuff. It'll help you get through a short time. But, um, you know, I was just reading some uh, papers recently that, our society or our culture has got to where uh, we need caffeine just to get us back to normal. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, and, and, and I, you know, when I talk to people, I'm like, Hey, imagine what that caffeine would do if you also got seven and a half, eight hours of sleep every night. It's a different kind of thing. Now that that caffeine gives you a boost uh, a bit above and beyond where you normally could be. But, uh, for most of us, or, or a lot of us, you know, that caffeine is what just brings us back to baseline or back to normal. Um, and that's not a good place to be. You know? There's there's all kinds of other health and uh, health problems and, uh, you know, mental challenges that we experience when we don't get enough sleep. So, um, yeah, you got to get enough sleep. That's, it's not, not that difficult. Uh, to say, but you know, we all have lives and we have kids and we have families and we got jobs and all those kind of things. And in the end, we have to make a decision prioritizing sleep and as much as we can. And yes, I understand kids get sick, things happen, life happens, but um, you know, when we get enough sleep, we can deal with those things a lot easier than, than when we don't. Yeah, and studies have shown that that like kind of our like our emotional judgment and our decision making, our rational, you know, and executive function is all better when we get sleep, particularly in excess of sure. seven hours. So, so yeah, there's a very interesting paper that showed that people were more kind of um, promiscuous, if you want to say that, or promiscuous, uh, uh, lacked moral judgment, and they had a week of sleep yeah. there, oh, yeah. sleep sleep there, coupled with alcohol. So, for example, if you 
were one of these cool dudes in your 20s or 30s who went out and had four or five hours sleep every night, worked really hard, and then on a Friday night went out and got drunk, you're more likely to, uh, you know, make a bad moral judgment. Not just guys, sure. but girls as well. So I like it's a, it was a very interesting paper. <laughs> so um, yeah, just be careful there on a Friday night. If you're, if you're a bit tired and having a few drinks, yeah, you, may yeah, yeah. you may go home with, well, the, you, with the wrong person. You know, what? <laughs> you know what? You're right. Well, you know what, though? You know, and I want to I bring that back into kind of what we're talking about is that, you know, you talk about making these bad moral decisions or bad life decisions when we're tired. Um, you know, I, I kind of half jokingly tell people, hey, don't do your taxes. Don't do relationship discussions. Don't do meaningful things when you're tired because you you're not as good. You don't make your cognitive processing is, is not as good. Your, uh, your moral compass maybe is not as good, but, but bring that back into the workplace. And I know you've seen them and I've seen them. A lot of us have seen, uh, um, called an incident report and you're looking at it and you're like, wait a minute, I know that guy. He's worked here for 27 years. What was he thinking? Why did he do that? Mm. And there's all kinds of reasons. Oh, he was pressured. Uh, you know, uh, his supervisor, his manager, his roommates were like, hey, just hurry up, go do that, get it done. We got to get out of here. Um, and, and sure, that's some of it sometimes. But what we also know is that as we become fatigued, just like you said, um, we're much more inclined to take part in risky behaviors. Okay. So it's, it's that, you know what, I know I'm supposed to, um, be harnessed up and strapped in uh, to work at heights here, but man, it's only going to, if I, if I do that, it's going to take me 20 minutes to get all the garbage out and junk and get hooked up. But I could just slide along this, this rail here and, and grab that thing that I need. Um, and it'll take me two minutes. Well, when we're tired, we're much more likely to say, oh, I'll just kind of scooch out there and grab it and forget about the harness and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. So, and, and, and that's, you know, you also see it too, where, you know, you ever ask somebody, Hey, have you ever nodded off and fallen asleep while you're, while you're driving? And lots of us say, yeah, you know what I did. And I was on the rumble strips on the side of the road, or I hit the gravel on the side, but I came back. Right. And the next question I, I often ask them is like, so did you mean to do that? <laughs> and they kind of look at you funny and they're like, well, no, I didn't mean to fall asleep. Well, why did you? Weren't you? You were driving like you know, 100 kilometers an hour down the road, and you had your family in the car with you. Well, no, I didn't mean to. Well, well, why did it happen? Well, I don't know. It just happened, right? And and that gets to the part where, as human beings, we are horrible at knowing how fatigued we are and how well we're actually performing. You ask anybody, what's the common answer to how you doing? fine. I'm good. Right. And you look at some of these people working shifts and not getting good sleep and you're like, you don't look fine or good. Right. And you know, some of it is just politeness and we don't want to dig, but some of it is we don't know how tired we really are. So that that's, that's a problem. I, I, I think it's interesting. You said about that question and I want to divert her to a kind of a psychology thing for a moment. Cause sometimes <laughs> like I'd be going when people go, how are you? I go, I feel like shit. I'm having a bad day. And people go, oh, they don't, they don't expect it. And I think to myself, <laughs> if you wanted to find answer and everything's hunky-dory, why did you even bother asking? Because you don't really care, <laughs> you know? Or sometimes yeah, I, 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 I find in Australia, people have got 
And it's really nice. Like, I don't know, but I just think it's a funny observation. I walk into a shop and people go, hey, how you doing? I go, hey. And we go, oh, fine, thank you. And I'm like, they're so, they're so like used to getting the, re- yeah. the reciprocal of like, I'm good, how are you? That they don't even yeah, think yeah. about it. They're just autopilot, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, no, it's, it's, it's true. It's really funny. Go, it, uh, it, <laughs> Yeah, no, it's habits, but that's part of it. You're right, Ian. It's like, <laughs> how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. Yeah. Great. <laughs> now that we've established that, can we talk about how we really feel? Oh, man. So tired right now. I yeah, yeah. Really, you know? I'm going to kill that tire work. work. <laughs> <laughs> but that's part of the stigma, too. You know, if you, you walk in, hey, how you doing? You know what? I am exhausted. I'm really tired. I'm really concerned about whether or not I'm going to fall asleep while I'm driving this enormous piece of equipment tonight. Mm. <laughs> and people will just, they'll be like, oh, okay, well, I'm good too, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. It's like we, we're not even looking or listening for, for those kind of conversations. And they're still a bit taboo, honestly. You know, a lot of places, you, really, I don't want to know that. Then I'm, I'm responsible, I'm culpable, and... If something happens to you, they're going to come and investigate and they'll say, well, you knew the guy was tired and you let him drive anyway? Well, uh, I'm not his boss, right? So there, there's, that's getting back kind of to that cultural piece of, you know, it, is it a culture that, that understands that we all get tired and, and is, is okay with it and, and really trying to look out for each other and, and apply the tools and all the things that, that they have to, to get through their fatigue. And another thing, Todd, as well, that I've seen recently, it's not just about, um, we take, we, and we're kind of very much speaking about fatigue risk management and mining type of applications today. But one of the things when I was traveling a lot for work, doing what you do, um, I actually came across another level of fatigue risk management that I think is completely missed, and it's the executive fatigue management. I sat on, oh, a, plane, yeah. I sat on a plane one time from LA to uh, Sydney, which is like 15 hour yeah. flight, whatever, roughly. Yeah. And there was a guy sitting across the aisle from me. And we were in business class, and it was all nice, and it was great, and so on. But this guy looked, looked out of his brain tired. Uh, I, and the reason I noticed him was because he worked for another mining company, and he was quite high level. And um, he was sitting there having a few whiskeys or brandies, quite a few, three or yeah. four. Then he started drinking red wine, and he had his dinner, and they had a few more, and he had a nap for like 10 minutes or something. Then he woke up, and in full view, you could see this company's like, you know, financial figures. <laughs> he had stuff thrown around. <laughs> I was easily reading all these like applications for expansion, all stuff that was like, you know, shouldn't have been out there for public yeah. consumption. So I thought, yeah, number, yeah. number one, right, he's like, he's just having no control over this information. But number two, the guy is half pissed. <laughs> yeah. He's half drunk yeah. doing this. And would we, would we yeah. walk into an office as a leader and go, right, you know, like an episode of Mad Men, Hey Roger, pass the bottle of brandy. Let's sit around here and look at this capital expenditure while we get yeah. half half cut, you know, before lunch. And yeah. I, I find it really interesting in certain scenarios we're allowed to do certain things, but also sure. where you're talking about this kind of uh, comfort with, you know, lack of sleep or just pushing on and getting things done, and we're the we're the tough guys, you know. But yeah, you, yeah, could, you, well, review, you could review, review one of those documents and make a decision that costs multi-million dollars or yes. you're, a, you're looking at a roster that has to be approved or the implications of that further on the line. You're just not having a rational thought at the time because you're sleeping sure, yeah. and alcohol. 
Uh, exactly. And, and well, and, and, you know, I, I don't know if we want to get into that, but <laughs> you know, the, the, we know how much alcohol affects us and uh, you know, very famous study Drew Dawson did many years mm-hmm. ago, which really helped uh, kind of put a, I don't know, a face on what fatigue looks like, right. Is, is that, that correlation between when people get drunk compared to when they're really tired and how similar it, it, it is physiologically, cognitively, you know, all those things. Um, and, you know, you, you hit a good point in that we often think, oh, the, the big risk is the people, you know, running this heavy equipment or operating this machine or on this part of the assembly line or manufacture, whatever it is. But the reality is it affects all of us. Yeah. It is, um, you know, a VP of ops gonna, you know, put his hand somewhere where it's not supposed to be in a machine. Probably not, but might he make a bad decision or not be able to really comprehend all the bits of information in front of him to make a good decision? Well, yeah, that can happen quite easily. And there are examples of it. Uh, where it's led to, you know, poor judgment or poor decisions ultimately have led to pretty catastrophic events. Um, you know, you look at kind of the the history of, um, you know, major industrial accidents, and it's not always that someone just fell asleep at the switch. It's sometimes that the people that made the decision to go ahead and do whatever it is we're really tired and not looking at all the facts, not looking at all the information and saying, Oh yeah, it's fine. Just go ahead and go do it. And it ends in catastrophe. So, you know, it fatigue is not really something that, that is limited to, to people working nights or working through those early morning hours between three and six or so in the morning. It it's, it's all of us. And, um, you know, we, we tend to overlook it a lot. Yeah. So Todd, just these, accept it for <clears throat> these um, these technologies, Todd, that you guys use a caterpillar, the smart band yeah. and the DSS. Can you, yeah. can you start with the smart band? Because that's very it's more or less the same as what we um, spoke about before, probably the ready band. But can you sure, um, yeah. can you speak about the difference with the smart band and sure. how, you, how so, you use it? Yeah, and the you know, when you start looking at if you go back to, to where we were talking about earlier about these layers of defenses. Uh, within a fatigue risk management system, um, you know, technology definitely can play a, a big role. Um, and when you start looking at the available technologies, you find some are geared towards certain industries or certain uh, work types of workforces. Um, and some are more systemic, some are looking at the individual. And the smart band is one that, um, you know, at the, at the, I guess, base of it is designed to assist or monitor uh, the individual and how they're doing with their sleep and, and their fatigue, their effectiveness. And so what the smart band does is um, it's a, it's a accelerometer. So it's a, just a, you know, a little accelerometer inside of a, a band. And as we move around, uh, it captures those movements. And then the algorithms behind that translate it into minute by minute decisions about is this person awake or are they asleep? And over time it kind of builds a a profile of of your patterns um, and can adapt to that. The outcome is then identifying and and really starting to put in objective terms, 
how much sleep people are really getting. You say, well, why can't we just ask them? Well, typically when you ask someone how much sleep they get, they'll give you a number. When you start to investigate that number, it's usually not really that number. Meaning, for example, hey, how much sleep did you get last night? Oh, you know, I got like seven hours of sleep. Oh, good. What time did you get up this morning? I got up at six. Great. So you went to bed at 11. Well, actually, you know, I started to, and then I realized um, I needed to make the kids lunches for tomorrow. Oh, so you got in bed at like 11.15. Well, I was gone, and the dog wanted to go out, so I had to take the dog out, and cut, right? Okay, so what, 11.30? Yeah, but then I got in bed, and I was looking through my emails on my phone, and I decided to play Candy Crush, and... So what time do you think you actually turned the light out? Oh, maybe more like midnight. Okay. So now you're seven hours, which, yeah, that's pretty good, is now six hours, which is probably not enough. Okay. So if you're doing that every night, now you, you're not really getting the amount of sleep you need. So, you know, the, the smart band is, is something that for the individual is a real eye-opener, um, provides a lot of information information to the user to the wearer um you know and, and it's got an app and you can track your your stuff that way but it also starts to give us a picture uh overall on a on a site whether it's a, a mine or a manufacturing facility a construction site doesn't matter as to where people are in terms of how much sleep they're getting but also there's an extension and, and additional analyses that start to predict where people are at higher risk, where they're at lower risk. Um, and with that kind of information, you can say, hey, listen, uh, because of the break structure that we use, um, it's not really helping people. They're getting these breaks at times when, on average, nobody's really tired. They're doing pretty good maybe we should move it an hour or an hour and a half or two hours or give them a little bit shorter break here and a little bit longer break there, um, you know, as a countermeasure to help them get through those times when, for example, on a night shift between three and six in the morning, they're going to be struggling. So, you know, the, the smart band really helps us identify uh, where people are having individual struggles. Uh, and that's where a lot of the power lies because if you can just help one person that is, really struggling with sleep, whether it's because they have a sleep disorder or just maybe some short-term problems at home. And when you can help them fix their little problems, you know, it, it helps the, the group as a, as a whole, right? Because you don't usually find that everybody is tired all the time. You identify a, a, typically a smaller group of people that are really struggling, right? that are at the higher risk. And, and so the smart band can help us do that. It's interesting to say that um, because <laughs> there's a very interesting uh, Buddhist philosopher type guy I follow, an American guy who trained in, in Southeast Asia. What he says as well, like when you're trying to solve the problems in the world, he goes, don't try and solve the problems of the world. Just work on yourself. And if we all work on ourselves, <laughs> things will be better. So it's kind of interesting that you say about that because if we do all do a little bit, some little better every day, you know, the group will collectively become better. It's probably worth sure. knowing as well at this time that um, – with this smart band for people listening, <clears throat> how good is the band? Yeah. Well, I, I can tell you, my friends, I have just validated that in a laboratory-based study and a home-based study, the technology that lies in the smart band um, <clears throat> has been validated and it is good to use. It's as good as any other device. So if you're out there and you're worried about the scientific validity of it, 
it's good. We just had it published in the journal Sleep and Biological Rhythms about two or three weeks ago. And yeah. that, that, you can actually get a link to that blog I, I wrote on the, on the website. So if you head to sleepforperformance.com.au, you can read more about that and actually view the paper as well if you're that way inclined and you like all that data. Um, so yeah, for those people, um, have a look at that. Sure. Secondly, Todd, the other one you're using is the DSSC machine, which is more about for like an in-cab application for a truck or even inside a, a, a train engine, you know, or yep. inside, a, sure. inside a four-wheel drive. Um, yep. People would have heard about these things, these um, kind of devices. What do they do? Are they just video cameras that record people and someone's watching and kind of makes an assessment on when they're asleep? Or right. How do these things work? Or is it just there to spy on people? Yeah, so that that's uh, yeah. I'll start maybe just quickly. the 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 DSS, the driver safety system, is um, you know it's a camera based technology. So for the most part, it's going in uh, vehicles, whether it's a haul truck on a mine site or uh, a supervisor's light vehicle on a mine site or an over the road truck. Right. So it, it's it's typically though equipment and. It has a camera uh, and it has a, a brain behind it where it's constantly looking at the face of the driver. Um, there's no interaction. They don't have to turn it on or stare forward for five seconds. It, as soon as they get in the truck, um, you know, that, that camera is already finding the points of the face and it looks at about 24 different points on the face to build a picture of, of that person. Uh, and that usually happens within... Uh, just a second or two after they they sit down in, in the truck, the camera itself is um, watching those uh, features, and in particular, it's looking for in terms of fatigue, it's looking for eye closures. And um, you know, you can set different thresholds, but typically, it's it's a reactive, near real time re response. So, uh, a person, for example, may have their eyes closed for. Uh, one and a half seconds and the vehicle is moving at a certain speed. And if that happens and the camera sees that, uh, they'll immediately get an alarm in the cab and uh, we vibrate the seat as well. So they get a, a bit of a physical response and they have an auditory uh, cue as well. Once that happens, um, you know, that's it. They, they keep going. Um, and this is where there's almost two parts to the system. One is real time in the cab in that, um, you know, that video is, is going, but it's not that it's not like a closed circuit TV, right? We don't have a, a room full of thousands of monitors that are uh, with people watching every single person driving all across the world. Um, you know, there's about uh, somewhere around 4,000 units in play right now. So you can imagine that's a lot of people you need to watch all that. So what the brain behind it does is watch it has a bit of a lag in the video. And so when it sees someone's eyes close, it'll just capture that little episode and that clip then gets sent to our monitoring center in Peoria. Uh, and we have people that, that we've worked with and trained to, to look at those clips and say, yep, that person fell asleep uh, or no, they just sneezed three times real fast and their eyes were closed and it wasn't really a fatigue, right? So, so there's kind of a second step to that where we have people who are looking at those little four or five second video clips and confirming um, whether it was fatigue or not. Part two happens after that. So if they identify, and this is something that, that we would work with a site to develop um, a 
a plan for how are you going to manage these fatigue events. So realizing, hey, we all get tired. Chances are if you're driving a night shift, you're going to get sleepy at some point. Mm -hmm. And it's quite likely that, you know, you might nod off a little bit. So once we identify that, hey, there was a fatigue event, now what do we do? Um, and after we notify site that, hey, this, this truck just had a fatigue event or this person, um, we have a, a set of procedures in place on site where typically they'll, they'll get some kind of a private message. Hey, uh, you just had a fatigue event. Are you doing okay? And the, the operator has a, a chance at that point to say, Oh yeah, I'm doing fine. I'm be okay. Or they can say, actually, no, do you think you could get me a break for 10 or 15 minutes and, you know, get a cup of coffee, get a drink of water, whatever it is. Right. But, but something to, to help mitigate their fatigue. And then it can escalate after that. Maybe a second one, you want someone to go out, um, maybe a general foreman or a supervisor to go out and say, Hey, are you doing okay? And what that face to face does is, you know, as you know, over the phone or through non-face-to-face communications, you can say you feel fine when in reality you don't look fine and you're not fine at all. Yeah. Right. So, so we want someone to go out and talk to them. Hey, are you doing okay? Do we need to, to do anything different? Do you need a break? Uh, put you on a different piece of equipment, wh- whatever it is. Um, but then if they hit a third event uh, in a shift, uh, and typically, most of the mines are, are running 12-hour shifts. If they hit a third event in that shift, um, it's a required that we want them to stop. Not forever, not fired. They're not being disciplined. It's just, hey, we're starting to see a trend. You know, lots of us are going to have one. Sometimes we'll have two. If you have three, uh, it's usually a good indication that, <clears throat> uh, you know, there's something a little bit more challenging. And uh, at that point, then there's a discussion about, hey, what can we do? Um, and, and you know, even in cases where people continue to have two and three events every shift, we've also been able to, in the right situation, with the right culture and the right environment, you know, we found people that didn't know they had sleep apnea. Or we had one person that um, had bad eyesight, and they were constantly, constantly squinting, um, you know, to the point where their eyes were tired. And, and so, you know, we see these kind of things. And, and now we're at the individual level again, where we can go and say, hey, here's some things you can do. Hey, uh, we can refer you, maybe go see this doctor, all those kind of things. And, and so we're treating, again, the individual, but it's a kind of a, a system or, um, you know, a procedure that's in place as part of the operation. Um, and that's what comes back to what we were speaking about with the integration piece. When you do identify those people, you can actually have a kind of a, I call it a little kind of a, a dog-leg process to refer them into your existing medical procedures on that site, or pro, sorry, procedures, medical processes on that site. So if you have an occupational yep. health physician who you normally does annual medicals or sees people before they're employed or gets called in sort of ad hoc, well, then you have a system whereby they get referred to that medical doctor to then go and see a sleep physician or get further assessment. And yep. so we kind of, we spread it out and we integrate into those pieces of work. Or like what you were saying about the call-outs with the general foreman or supervisor, does that then integrate with the the kind of the uh, feed-based leadership that that supervisor is doing overnight? You know, because they know that Johnny, uh, Johnny Bananas on truck number 24 is tired, 
does he go by truck 24 three or four extra times or just kind of circle yeah. back and loop? So we, we start building and we're looking for these kind of little improvements uh, as well in, in how we do sure. these things and we, and we integrate it in. Yeah, well, you know, for so long, fatigue has been very reactive, right? Mm -hmm. we, we respond, we do things about fatigue when <laughs> something bad happens. I mean, for years, companies would call us after they had a, a fatigue-related incident. And we're yeah. going, hey, listen, <laughs> don't wait till then. There's a lot of things you can do that are proactive. And, and so when you start, you know, one of the things that excited me um, uh, about, you know, moving to Caterpillar was the opportunity to start grabbing all these different technologies and putting them together. Because my opinion is that there isn't one single technology, there's not one single layer of protection in a fatigue risk management system that fixes everything, right? You, you combine all these things and not everybody needs sleep apnea screening. People are just fine. Not everybody needs information on eating healthy for being alert or some people are really good sleepers. They don't need extra help on that. So, you know, not that you take a shotgun approach, but, but all these different layers are designed to help the people that, that need that layer, right? So you can't just say, oh, well, we're just going to do training and education. That'll fix it because everybody has to be responsible for their own fatigue. Well, yes, that's true. But, you know, life still happens, right? Just as an example, sometimes you'll see people that are really struggling. And when you have things like the DSS or like, um, you know, the smart band or, or other technologies for that matter, and you start to say, hey, you know, what's his name? Joey Bananas? Johnny <laughs> hey, Bananas. Joey, Joey that's, his that's his brother you're talking oh, about now. Okay. Joey <laughs> must be, a, is, Joey's his American brother? Is that what it yeah. is? Yeah, we got Johnny Bananas in Australia and Joey Bananas in America. <laughs> okay, so Joey or, Joey or Johnny, hey, um, and you, you, you're, looks like you're struggling. You're doing okay. And, and once you have a conversation, you can find out, oh, yeah, you know, uh, I had a death in the family. It's really, mm. it's got on me. It's bothering me. Well, you know, okay, hopefully we have a, a little bit of humanity left. And we can say, okay, I get that, you know. But that's short term. If it's sleep apnea or another sleep disorder, well, if you don't treat it, it's not going to get better by itself. And, <laughs> by you know, if you... Exactly. So you, you can identify some of these challenges. And if you have that living within a, a comprehensive fatigue risk management system with everything, including the continuous improvement and the follow up and how do we put some some real objective measurements, um, you know, that's when you start to see the results. So sometimes talk about I've been sent to paper recently is, you know, fatigue risk management is like design your own adventure. Um, because you have a base operating system that you, you probably need in a fatigue risk management system. You need to probably educate people, have some policies, have some procedures, sure. have some checklists, yep. have some tools for supervisors. You know, you need all that yep. kind of, that's your base operating system. And then you kind of choose your own adventure next and you pick off whatever one you want yourself. You screen somebody sure. for sleep apnea, the do or do not do night shift, you assess this, you do this, you don't do that. And so you can kind of, you know, design your own path within that. But the fundamental, the, the building blocks are all there from an organizational standpoint, individual standpoint. They're all there at your fingertips and people know about them, are happy with them yeah. and use them. Yes. Well, and, and you're, you're right. Know about them is one thing. Just like we were talking earlier. Oh, yes, we have a lovely fatigue risk management system. Would you like to see it? It's in this yeah. fancy binder right here. It's very pretty. 
yeah, let me just dust, uh, you know, dust it off and show it. Well, that is fantastic. Look at that. And then you go talk to Johnny Bananas or Joey Bananas. bananas. Like, uh, yeah, hey, uh, so Mr. Bananas, um, I heard you, you have a very nice fatigue risk management system. And they'll go, what's a fatigue risk management system? Oh, well, that's where we provide training and education for you. And, and we have these different, they're going, I don't even know what you're talking about, right? So it's it's actually, you know, yeah, build your own journey. And it, and if if it's sleep apnea, screening and awareness, great. That should be part of it. But, you know, and that's another place maybe where the technology helps is, you know, you can start to identify what are people really struggling with. Is it the schedule? Is it the commute? Is it the, the shift start times? And, and you can start to use some of that technology to make decisions about where you put your efforts um, in doing this because it, it takes time and effort and it's mm-hmm. not a one-time fix. It's not just, well, we trained everybody like four years ago. They should be all set. Oh, really? I don't think so. You know, so you have to keep coming back to it. And, you know, we, you know, you think about a wheel that just keeps going around and around. Well, you have to continue to assess and define, you know, uh, and, and create new solutions and implement them. And then you have to check them and it just kind of keeps going around. But that's your point about building it into an existing safety management system or an existing uh, process on site. And it's really important, and and it it makes the difference between companies that that are really getting the benefits of managing fatigue versus companies who have a really nice fatigue risk management system document. Yeah, you know. Yeah, no, it's it's it, it, the great points here, and I th- I think it's um, you know, I think even if you even if you're a small company or a small operator or you're an individual and your organization doesn't have a fatigue risk management system. You can still do a lot yourself. There's this podcast you can listen to. There's blogs out there. There's lots of good information out there. Um, Absolutely. You know, from people that you, yeah. can, you can get freely, you know. And like we said many times in this podcast, you can go to my website, download free books or blogs or listen to these things yeah. when you're on the go, you know. Um, so if you are bored and you're falling asleep in a truck, put this podcast on. It'll either make you fall asleep <laughs> or keep, keep you awake. But either way, it'll stimulate some behavior in one direction. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah. Like, you know, so there's lots you can do yourself, you know. Um, yeah, we for sure. We don't Absolutely. possibly sit back and, and just have it done to us. No, and and that's you know, I just very quick on that topic. You know, people have this notion that oh my gosh, FRMS, that's huge. We have to get this big corporate initiative in. I'm, and I'm going, yeah, that's important. You you really should do that. But you know what? It doesn't mean that you shouldn't just do a 15 minute toolbox talk on yeah. on sleep apnea or. Yeah. Uh, you know, on, hey, guys, uh, do you know that when you adjust to night shift, if you do these two things, it's going to make it a lot easier, right? So it, it's, yeah, it's a big undertaking, and it can be a big undertaking, but there are so many things you can do um, day-to-day that, that can make a huge difference. Um, so start with those, you know. Great talk. We're going to leave it there because we've been talking for like nearly an hour and a half, which is which is awesome. And um, I think there's definitely more more talks we can do. We'll put this sure. one out before Christmas, and um, yeah, I think people will be really interested in this. Recently, we've been getting some comments about uh, having more practical people on. Um, I think you definitely fit that mold. We've had a lot of academics on, which is great, and lots of people doing research and and stuff like that. But I think you bridge that gap nicely, where you know you've done academia stuff in terms of like uh, your background. 
you keep up to date with the research, your interest in that part. But more importantly, you're out there day to day doing this stuff for companies at all sorts of levels. Like, um, you know, you're heading off to like Brazil soon. You've been all over the world doing this. You've been in crazy places that people can't even pronounce. So I think it's great that <laughs> we get someone with your experience on. I think we'll have, definitely have more talks, um, you know, in 2018. And um, so, yeah. Hey, it, thanks, really good. Well, and I count, I count you in that group of people that are doing the research, but also, hey, how do we, how do we fix this problem? What can we do? And, and I appreciate what you're doing with it, too. Yeah, and I think it's an important aspect, mate. You know, I, I don't want to knock anybody on either side of the fence, but I like to really get out there and, and you know, do the practical stuff of this. This is what really gets me excited. You know? I, I enjoy going to finish off this PhD. Five weeks left, people. Five weeks. <laughs> uh, and... Um, <laughs> Yeah, and then uh, I'll, yeah. I'll, be, I'll be done and then sort of get back out into the trenches and, and start getting my hands dirty again, start getting people to oh. fight with me, getting climbing all over plant and equipment, and, <laughs> and mining, mining guys and girls screaming at me and shouting no, at me and that, I don't understand anything. I love it. I love the fights on site. <laughs> that never happens. No? That never happens. Really? No, no. No, no. no. Well, I'll tell you, someday, no. someday in my older years, thought I would release a podcast series of what really went on. Like, <laughs> like the day the guy wanted to throw down full fist fight with me in a lunchroom. <laughs> People don't. Fatigue is not real. Yeah. I, I went to, let me just tell you about my other background, such as jujitsu, <laughs> a little bit of striking, <laughs> military. <laughs> anyway, it's, yeah, all, good, it's all good never. fun. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> For those of you not listening, Todd, how tall are you, Todd? Six. Uh, I am six feet, four inches tall. Yeah, and you used to play football, American football. Did, wear, what do you wear, like 230, 240? Right. Yeah, right now I'm about 235. Yeah. So you see, I'm five foot ten, 169 pounds. So people are going to pick on me quicker than they're going to pick on you. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I always let you walk in front of me. They take a swing at you first. <laughs> yeah, but what people don't realize, like I said before, is I have this great combination of martial arts and long distance running. So I'm going to hit you once, but then you better be able to run, then you better be able to run like 60 miles to catch me. I said that recently. One of our one of our brown belts jiu-jitsu. He's really big and strong, about 95 kilos, and I was yeah. like nearly 200 pounds. I was like, yeah, but I win. Yeah. He's like, how? Oh. And I said. I would slap you in the face and then run 100 miles. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tom, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much, man. My Cheers. pleasure. Thanks, Ian. Appreciate it.